Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest on this edition of The Literary Life is a wonderfully good friend and an old, old friend, someone that I've known for many, many years. His name is Christopher Fine, and I know him as Chris, and I've known him doing the good work that he does um, about um, protecting us from censorship from the time that I was a member of the board of the American Booksellers Association, when Chris was the director of something called the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression. Chris uh, was in that position for, I believe, about eight years or so, and he moved on to where he is now the executive director on a really important organization that is fighting the good fight on behalf of all of us called the National Coalition Against Censorship. And it's my pleasure to serve with Chris on that board. Chris is the executive director, and we're here in Miami to celebrate the publication of a new book that Chris has just come out with called How Free Speech Saved Democracy, the untold history of how the First Amendment became an essential tool for, secu- for, liberty, for securing liberty and social justice. And anyone who's been following the news recently knows that Miami and Florida is ground zero for so much of the work that Chris is doing. So I welcome you, Chris, and I know that we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I first want to say how proud I am to be associated with NCAC and how I've just been such an admirer of yours all these years for uh, keeping your eye on the prize and fighting censorship wherever you see Well, back at you, Mitchell. (laughs) Um, The fact that you are now a a board member of two of the boards that I've served um, just means that as long as I, before I retire, you may be on a third and a fourth. (laughs) Um, 
you're uh, you, you've always been a key player. So it's it's great to be here today. Well, you know, when I was thinking about you coming to Miami, I thought about, and this may give listeners an idea of just how bookstores and anyone selling books as well as libraries and other places can be under attack uh, in a way that is clearly falls in the realm of uh, censorship or giving a chilling effect to people who want to buy their books in places like bookshops. When I was on the board and Chris was the head of Apfi, one day I came in, Chris, you probably remember this, I came, I was driving into our Carl Gable store and I got a phone call from a staff member saying the FBI was in our store asking for me. And certainly that, those are not words, those are not words that you want to hear. But I came and I met two FBI agents who told me that they wanted my books and records of a particular purchase that was made about three or four years beforehand by a political figure. And they wanted to know if I had a record of, of the books that this person had bought. And fortunately, I knew of Chris and I knew of that organization at the time, which was Abfi. So I called up Chris. I told these guys, look, I'm not giving you anything. And I spoke to Chris at the time after they left when they weren't happy about leaving and they were a little bit severe with me. And I had a really, uh, I had a real sense of confidence knowing that there was a guy like Chris who could back me up. And you did. Well, that, that was during a period when we were discovering that as the, the, the police and finally the FBI discovered that bookstore records um, were a real fruitful field for investigation. You know, it was a big surprise to all of us that um, these records could ever be discovered um, because, you know, our fear was once uh, the police begin to probe private reader records, people would no longer feel free to buy the books and read the books that they wanted to read. So this really became then a, a big fight, a huge fight, this was right after Act, the Patriot Act. Right? The Patriot Act, which um, gave the FBI the ability to go into go into any business and demand their business records under in complete silence, and um, and the orders were not challengeable. And I was supposedly not even supposed to call you, right? Right, right. Uh, we, we had this system. We we were determined to provide lawyers for bookstores anyway. So we had this system where, since you couldn't tell us in so many words what was going on, all you, you could call us and tell us, I can't tell you what I'm calling about. <laughs> and then we would know to send the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and you were very successful in getting the subpoena quashed. Yeah, so, um, so we... Um, you know, we under we began to undertake legal battles and political battles. Um, we engaged in a grassroots campaign um, to re-establish um, the the safeguards for reader records, um, both in bookstores and libraries, um, in the Patriot Act. And um, it was a two-year campaign that you know was really read, led by Bernie Sanders and. Um, 
So yeah, that's that's one of the the big fights we've had in the last you know couple. And of I'm years. and I'm proud to say that booksellers were at the front lines of that. You had Joyce Meskis with the tattered cover. There was that famous uh, case on uh, with Bill Clinton and that bookstore in the two bookstores in D.C. Yeah, that were supposedly supposed to give up the records of the books that. Bill Clinton had potentially given as a gift to Monica Lewinsky, right. and they didn't give them up, and it was really quite a quite a win. the The thing that the FBI didn't know is that I really didn't have those records. <laughs> you know, I didn't have the records of that sale, and to this day, we really don't keep records of the individual purchases of bookstores. Right. I mean, of, of book buyers for that for that very same reason. Right. Right. And, um, but some booksellers wanted to keep the records. They wanted it, you know, these are small independent businesses that use those records to um, establish relationships with their of customers. Course, and of course. So, yeah, there was a division among booksellers about those who, you know, wanted to burn, you know, not burn it, but didn't want to record that information and those who did. So Well, and a we lot of them now them. do. With, you know, certainly the whole idea of privacy has changed immensely given what's happened with the Internet. But we're right on the cusp also of Banned Books Week. Banned right. Books Week starts. This, this podcast, most you know, people will be hearing it throughout the year, but if you're listening to it right on Friday when it comes out, Banned Book Weeks, I believe, starts on that Sunday, Sunday yeah. and runs for a full week. And talk a little bit about Banned Books Week and, and what that all means and how it got started. Yeah, Banned, uh, Banned Books Week dates from 1982. Um, and what was happening, uh, the background for it, was that uh, the election of Ronald Reagan really um, kind of opened the door to a lot of conservative advocacy around um, books, uh, books in schools and um, libraries and um, encouraged a lot of challenges. And there were, you know, um, book, the, the books that were being created for young adults were beginning to change, and they were begin, beginning to be, um, to deal more concretely with the problems of, you know, young adults. And Judy Bloom was writing books about sex and uh, the problems that kids had around sex and um, books about addiction and, um, books that were more realistic about the environment that kids were living in, but those those same books were outraging uh, parents, some parents, and the number of book challenges shot up um, to over thirteen hundred uh, a year um, from a you know fairly low uh, base, and like today, um, uh, librarians were really being um, uh, really under the gun, and a lot of lies were being spread again, like today, about the books that they that were being challenged, and they were called pornography, and they were called obscenity, and um, they were nothing of the kind. And what ALA um, realized so brilliantly was, let's let people see the books that are being challenged. Let's let them look at the books. So they began to put out displays of the challenged books. And what people found was that in many cases, their favorite books were on those tables. And it was shocking to them because they believed, you know, um, what they had heard. And um, 
So it built, you know, it built acceptance um, for the books, uh, for the newer generation of books. It um, and it, it led um, even more significantly to this change. Um, you know, the it's not it's not like the school officials were happy about it either. You know, they were really under the gun from these, um, you know, these conservative challenges. And what both uh, libraries and school districts began to do was to adopt uh, written review policies. This was at a time when if a parent got mad, he could go in or she could go in and complain to a principal and a principal could walk into the, the library and just pull the book without any justification apart from the fact that he wanted that person to go away. And um, so the review policies were, first of all, to, to make them formal, um, challenges and um, to provide for a formal review policy, uh, a formal review, um, which usually involved the creation of a committee, um, often including a, a parent, uh, almost always a, a teacher or um, a librarian, a professional who um, knows something about book selection, a parent, sometimes a student, sometimes another community members, and they read the book and decided whether um, the book was still appropriate for um, for retention. In the overwhelming number of cases, they kept the book. And the result was to, to really um, severely limit uh, the number of, uh, to severely over time to reduce the number of challenges. People who were complaining didn't want to put their name on paper. Um, you know, they didn't think they were going to get a fair shake from the review committees, and, you know, they generally um, just gave up. What we're seeing today is um, an attack on those, an attack on, once again, on school officials that they're now re ignoring their review policies. And instead of going book by book, they're taking um, groups of books off the shelves um, and promising that they'll be reviewed later. But, they, but what they've really done is completely, and in some cases, some of the books have come back, but um, the number of books um, that were challenged in the last, um, in 2021, which is the last time we have um, data for, um, tripled. The number of challenges doubled. The number of books tripled because they were no longer challenging single books. They were challenging groups. So, um, so we find ourselves back in, in very similar yeah, circumstances. Yeah, so was it fair to say that a lot of that early work through Banned Books Week, what the ALA was doing, what you were doing with, uh, with ABFI and what a lot of other organizations were doing, including the NCAC and Penn, that there was a lull oh, yeah. in challenges? Oh, yeah. No, and, it, it and, dropped down to three, three to 400 challenges a year. And what we're now seeing... And, and when would you date that? When is this new period begun? It was a very easy to date. It started, you know, in the fall of 21 with uh, the Virginia governor's race in which um, the bluest eye became a campaign. Um, the fact that the bluest eye was in the schools became a winning issue for the Republican who won the governorship. And pretty quickly after that, people saw a Republican candidates um, saw that this was a winning issue and um, uh, and 
and you know Katie bar the door you know we we find ourselves now facing an even larger number of challenges than we did in the 80s and let's you know there's such a confusion among some people about exactly how you define censorship if I as a bookseller choose not to sell a particular book in my store I don't think that's censorship, right? No. It's, it's selection. It's that I am I am curating what the books that I wanted. Booksellers booksellers have the First Amendment right to decide what books they want to sell and what they don't. I mean, otherwise you really do have state, you know, uh, state control. And um, so the Supreme Court has said, you know, no, um, that is, you know, that is an exercise of, of your rights. So what is censorship? There is state censorship. There's censorship by um, by government actors, um, and there is also private censorship in the sense that um, there are you know there are times in which um, there is pressure applied to the current you know to the system of publishing and bookselling and um, in an effort to prevent a particular book um, from being uh, for being published and sold uh, because people don't like the content. And some of that pressure, you know, in recent years has in fact come from, um, you know, progressives who really, you know, don't like books, you know, by, you know, don't want to see books by, um, you know, Republican politicians or, um, and they are, you know, they attempt to, um, you know, to prevent people from, having access to those books. Now, that's not illegal. In fact, it's an exercise of their First Amendment rights to add, so, so, to so advocate and to con conduct boycotts. But, you know, our feeling is that that's not, a, that's not the right way to, um, to approach disagreement with somebody that, uh, uh, whose ideas are different from But you. what we're seeing it very egregiously played out in the state of Florida is coming directly from the state more than anything else, yeah. starting with our governor. You want to speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, I think most of, you know, the overwhelming majority of the current fight is against um, uh, conservatives who want to, um, uh, to have books pulled that they, you know, feel are harmful to their kids. Um, and... Um, and it is, you know, uh, Florida is ground zero. Texas is a close second. But this is really happening everywhere. What's different about um, Florida is the passage of a number of laws that um, without question will have a chilling effect on uh, what books are in, in um, curriculum in library, school libraries, what teachers can say in class. Um, you know, it's a... It really is a war on um, ideas. And they're couching it in these, you know, uh, a parental, you know, parental rights bill. You know, they're, they're couching it in this language. I, I know that the, you know, the colloquial uh, moniker for that bill is a don't say gay bill, which probably is more accurate than the way, the way, the, the way that, it has been portrayed by those who passed it. And that in, in itself is having chilling effects, a chilling effect in school boards up and down Florida. I, I know that you have multiple examples. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, um, there is a great deal of fear in Florida. Um, fear of government action, fear of conservative advocacy, fear of parents, and that's not a, um, that's not a good thing to have in your school system or, or your library district um, because um, people in uh, positions to, to make decisions whether those books remain or not, um, you know, they're human and they, um, and they, they don't necessarily have a strong, you know, first amendment orientation. They'll, they will pull the books to save, you know, out of fear what might happen to them if they don't. Um, and, uh, so, it, and as far as parental rights go, I mean, that argument is, um, has been expanded to the point where one parent is arguing that they have the right to make decisions about what every other parent, every other parent in the school decides. And that's really not, you know, not the, um, not their right. That's way, way beyond. And the kicker is that on most of these, just about any, I think the the policy in the Miami-Dade public school system is if you don't want your kid to read a particular book, you can opt out of it. Right? Everybody, every district. Every district has that. You can just opt out of it and just not read it, have your kid not read it. But why should you be the one dictating what my kid reads? Exactly. So race, slavery, um, the persistence of racism in our society, those are all things that, you know, are being um, being attacked. But also, and probably in even greater numbers, LGBT books um, which are, you know, have, have finally made it into the curriculum so that LGBT kids have something to read that reflects their own lives. An astonishing thing happened here at Miami-Dade County. The school board, which for years had been supporting a gay pride month, which the month of October, this year, after voting for it seven to one last year, this year they voted seven to one not to support a uh, LGBTQ month, a gay pride month. Uh, and the signal that that is sending is just absolutely horrific. And that's a perfect example of how this, of the, the influence, the, um, how fear is taking over. Their legal director told them that they were, that they could absolutely do this. Um, that they had a legal right to do it, notwithstanding the don't say gay law, um, and that it didn't change their minds. You know, what changed their minds is the fear of being attacked. And that fear, you know, is, um, is everywhere. Well, and our governor just removed four members of the Broward County School District, ostensibly for something else. But they were all Democrats, and then he put four Republicans in. Yeah. And I think some of the members of the Miami-Dade public school system are frightened of the very same thing. But the good thing about what the, the, the Miami-Dade school board did was they gave a great, uh, some great evidence for the people who are challenging the Don't Say Gay law about the, the chilling effect of the law and, um, because it's just such a blatant example. Talk a little bit about him. We all, you know, I mean... He's someone that has been very near and dear to all of us here in Books and Books and in my own life, um, and that is Salman Rushdie. And um, 
you know, what he went through with the Satanic Verses. We were very proud of the fact that we were one of the first stores that he came to uh, when he was going out after the fatwa, when Moore's Last Sigh came out. He went on a small tour, and he actually came to Miami. And then I've had the pleasure of interviewing him on stage a number of different times. And, you know, he's funny, and he's smart, and all of those things. And it was just heartbreaking to see what happened. And in many ways, it brought us right back to what we as booksellers and what you at the time, you know, uh, fighting these fights were all about. And, and I think in some ways, it's waking all of us up once again at just how egregious this can all be. Well, it shows, it shows the lengths to which these lies can carry people. So what are some of the strategies that you've been using and some of the programs that you've been putting forth to change the tenor of all of this? Youth Free Expression is a major is our major project. We also have an arts advocacy project, but um, but books in schools has been um, our bread and butter since we were founded in you know in the mid nineteen seventies, and um, we monitor uh, what's happening in in school districts, and when. Um, as is happening right now, uh, they violate their policies. Um, you know, we try to, we, we indicate to them that, that we're aware of what they've done and we want them to change, to change it. Right now, those appeals are falling on deaf ears. Um, but, um, you know, our, our hope always is in sending letters like this that will link up, we'll find people in the districts um, who agree with us, who will, you know, um, step forward and uh, challenge, um, you know, challenge the censorship at school board meetings and even by running for school board? I think that's going to be key for the next four years or so is that we're going to have to get, you know, find a bench of people who want to run for the school board and who can articulate well. We have to do know, that because... The censors are also running for the school board. Well, absolutely. You we know, had a situation here of a, of a conservative Republican who wasn't conservative and Republican enough, and our governor put into a school board race over half a million dollars, which is unheard of. And she actually lost to a real, real, real uh, book-banning conservative. And it goes beyond even book banning. It goes to, it goes to curriculum, the whole idea of teaching history, black history, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ history. It, you know, I, I, it's a, we're, we're, you know, as a former teacher, I taught high school for three, four years. I would probably be arrested by now, probably, if I was still teaching. We've we've been through book banning episodes a number of times in in this country over the last century, and. And you were the history of that as well. Yeah, and in, in every case, you know, the uh, the book banners have lost. Um, and I think that um, as um, as we organize um, and people um, stand up and uh, and challenge in electoral um, circumstances or simply in school board meetings. Um, 
you know, that we will, you know, ultimately turn, you know, turn this tide. But um, it's going to take people who are willing to fight. The thing that a lot of people out there don't realize is that it's, as Chris said earlier, sometimes your most, you know, the, the, the favorite books of yours are banned. I mean, I think I read somewhere that the all-time, the, the book that has been banned, you know, the most is 1984 by George Orwell, I believe. Yeah, that, that would that would top the ironic cake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, books like Of Mice and Men were banned. Uh, the Captain Underpants series was banned. Um, Charlotte's Web was banned. Green Eggs and Ham was even banned. I mean, I would love to know why, you know, why that was challenged. Animal Farm, you mentioned Judy Bloom. She had a whole slew of books banned, including Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. So these are these are not, you know, uh, Mouse, who's very famous, Mouse, the history of the Holocaust. And then we're starting this time, I'm beginning to see this whole notion of CRT, which is such a bogus notion. You know, if you if your kid in high school is taking CRT, it means he's in law school, not <laughs> high school. Right. You know, there it, it's basically become synonymous with African American history is what it is. So right. there is no CRT really being taught. But the 1619 project is on the ban list. The color purple, you know, it's just it's as a bookseller, it's absolutely horrific to see that a lot of these kids in their schools don't have the ability to do it. But the good news is, as we all know from when we were kids, kids don't put up with that stuff. So they find these books one way or another. Mouse became a bestseller after it was banned. So, so one of the, you know, one of the, the brighter spots of what's, what's going on is that kids have gotten active um, and they have, in a number of cases, created banned books clubs, um, some in libraries, some in bookstores, where they read, um, you know, they get a chance to read uh, the books that they're not allowed to read in school. And um, libraries have been stepping up and um, giving free access, free internet access to books the Brooklyn, Public, the Brooklyn Public Library and the New York Public Library both allow um, kids from anywhere in the country to um, access ebooks of the. Oh, e that's beautiful. E yeah, that's really really. So beautiful. yeah, these are ways you know around the problem right now. And I can say that you know being here in Miami, a kind of ground zero, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of events at the bookstore, but there's also parent groups that are individually just flourishing now who are fighting this. They want to fight it on their own. They're equally, you know, their hackles are up and they're equally pissed off about this whole thing. And they're actually parents of kids in the schools, which makes it really, really powerful. But I want to get back to your book just a little bit because I think this will give, this answers some other questions, I think. And it's an, it's an argument that, you know, that, I think is so really important and goes to the heart of what I grew up with in the time when I was coming up and understanding the primacy of the First Amendment. So talk a little bit historically about how you view the First Amendment as being synonymous with democracy in some way. Well, I think one of the, one of the common mistakes that we um, that we have about the First Amendment is that it has always protected free speech. And that isn't true. Um, it's really only the last 
hundred years that um, court decisions have come come down to to amplify um, the strength of of those protections for everybody and really. Um, the most important gains that have been made for free speech and protecting free speech came in the civil rights movement when the South was trying to suppress the, the movement and use law to try to shut down the NAACP and Martin Luther King and, um, you know, trying to um, turning dogs on demonstrators and fire hoses. And so... Um, so really, the in the peak of that period of protection came finally in the late in the late '60s, when the Supreme Court, you know, handed down decisions protecting anti-war demonstrators. And so, really, we've only had had this for a limited period of time. And, and what's happened in the interim, and from the beginning of American history, is that the groups that have had benefited from um, from free speech have been, you know, the, the groups with the least power. So um, initially, the abolitionists, who in many cases were um, suffered bodily harm um, just by holding meetings, even in the North, um, you know, calling for an end to slavery. Um, there were the, you know, the, the advocates of equal rights for women, um, you know, who had to... Um, you know, who, who were laughed at. Um, initially, women were entirely excluded from um, any equal rights, and uh, in, including the right to, to speak, and um, was only their bravery that ultimately allowed them to break out of that, um, uh, you know, that silence and, and to advocate for, um, for equal rights. Um, people who criticized the war uh, in World War I, we put a thousand people in jail for criticizing our participation in World War I. And that was really kind of the moment of truth for many of the early civil libertarians. They said, if we can't criticize the government over its most uh, fundamental um, exercise of power, whether or not we go to war, then there is no democracy. And it was just in the immediate aftermath of that that um, that the ACLU was formed, and the the fight for free speech really began in a, in a formal way. So um, it's true we've always had the First Amendment, but we've always had to fight for free speech, and that's exactly where we are today. We have to fight, you know, fight these efforts to um, to limit what kids can read and. Um, we have to fight efforts, you know, the continuing effort to deny kids the right to, to speak out. We take it for granted that this, this freedom is always going to exist, but it's always, it's always in peril, or there's always going to be a peril because it reflects the conflicts in our society. And um, as long as there are conflicts in society, there's going to be one group that wants to suppress people that they disagree with, and the other group's going to feel pretty much the same. Free speech, even though we, you know, we haven't had, you know, the fulsomeness of it, but when we do, it's the one tool that we have to secure um, social justice, and and that's what we have to protect. 
when a protected class of people don't have rights. You know, that is what makes us the country we are, that we have to be able to assert their rights any way that we possibly can. And, and the right of free speech is one of those. I mean, we can't leave it up to, to what happens in Idaho or Nebraska or Texas or Florida. There has to be a standard that the entire country is governed by. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was the big change legally. And um, when the Supreme Court finally applied, you know, the Bill of Rights to all, all states. And ultimately, we look to the courts to, you know, to settle these issues in terms of our basic freedoms as they've, you know, they've been protected by previous decisions. And Which makes us all take, you know, have a pause because Supreme Courts, we're in a very precarious position right now with the Supreme Court that we have. Yep. And not so sure exactly how they would rule if a case came before them. There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of judges we have questions about. We do, we do. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you for being on The Literary Life. But before we go, why don't you tell the people listening exactly how they can get in touch with NCAC and maybe report some of the, um, some of the censorship that they see? So National Coalition Against Censorship the, is ncac.org. And um, go to the contact page and you'll see a link for reporting censorship. Um, and, uh, but you'll also see other ways to contact us for information. And, um, so yes, please do. And I'm not going to say this because I know Chris is too, um, you know, he doesn't want to bring this into it, but I would also say, please make sure that you look on the website for the button that allows you to donate to the NCAC because it is always in need of funds to keep their work going. And that can also be found at ncac.org. Chris, thank you. The book is How Free Speech Saved Democracy. And thank you for all the wonderful work you do. Thank you.